Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by an oral history of The Office podcast. 15 years ago, the American television landscape changed forever with the launch of a new series that struggled initially, but became one of television's most beloved and enduring comedies. An oral history of The Office pulls back the curtain on what went into creating this unstoppable force in American popular culture and why it continues to resonate with new audiences today. Hosted by Brian Baumgartner, who you know as Kevin Malone, and produced by PropGate Content, the podcast features interviews with the cast and creators from the fictional Dunder Mifflin Paper Company and reveals some never-before-heard stories from the people who were there from the very beginning. You'll hear from Steve Carell, John Krasinski, Rain Wilson, Ricky Gervais, and more. The show is now out so check it out and listen for free on Spotify. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line, my blue check for life. It's Andy Greenwald! What a tough afternoon for us, Chris. Do you think this is too niche? Do people know what we're talking about? I am full of high-octane, high-performance gasoline today because we are recording before 2 p.m. West Coast time. So your boy is still on the upswing. I have to tell a watch listener something. And now that we're really talking, welcome to Thursday. Dare I call it the re-up? We haven't called it that in such a long time. Oh, yeah. But usually, Andy and I record later in the afternoon. To accommodate certain people, who can say? You know, who can say? But Well, it's to accommodate certain people's certain dependents. But yes, Sure, sure, sure. But like, I'm willing to do that. I love you, man. And I love (laughs) this podcast. But I am so much more hyped for this episode today because I feel like I still am riding the the vapor trails of my morning coffee. Uh, You know, the the purity and the, the energy and the protein in my breakfast is still flowing through me. And I'm just ready to rock, man. It's 1230 in Los Angeles. Everything's going great in the world. Let's talk about pop culture amongst friends. God, I wish I could meet your energy level. I'm having a real, you know, protein roller coaster myself. Just had cereal this morning. Thought Uh I'd be eating lunch before this. This 1230 thing, it's thrown me. So it'll be interesting. There's just a different dynamic. I'm making excuses before we start. Um... Did you want to tweet anything yesterday when blue check Twitter was down? No, I've been going through a, a series of blocking myself on Twitter. Like just to kind of just to kind of um, it, it's really not for anything other than the fact that I feel like my attention span is being shredded by being at home so much. So I just like constantly right. am like refreshing. So I just I just kind of like I only have like one device that I can look at Twitter on and it kind of it's kind of. Is, is not is very your pleasant. wife's T-Mobile sidekick or something? Like, have well, you really... she's still. That's the thing is that, like, if I ever try to block Twitter for myself, like, I can count on you and my wife being like, "Did you see this?" and sending me tweets all day. <laughs> that's true, and I apologize for that. My problem is the only things that I want to contribute to the discourse, not in a podcast format, and and we're very lucky to have this platform to communicate our our deeper thoughts on the launch of s- subscription streaming services and the like, but. Every so often, I'll have a thought that I mm. kind of want to share. And this morning, yeah, I wanted to have this thought. And I thought about sharing it with you. And I was like, no, maybe I want a larger audience for this thought because I feel like I'd like other people to share it. And the thought was, isn't it weird that in 2007, Bruce Springsteen released a Magnetic Fields album? Because he made this album magic that essentially was Magnetic Fields songs. Like he was deeply inspired by the work of Stephen Merritt. Uh-huh. And I feel like that is very specific to two of my interests. Three, if I like 2007 too. And I was like, maybe I'll find other people. That was a good what? year. I was, was like, it? Yeah. But what I was happened? like, maybe I got married. Oh, yeah. That I was, mean, there were a couple other things. That was but killer. like, that was, that was close. A young, it, was a, it was a good movie. Let me tell here. you, a young senator from Illinois stood up in front of the country and said, yes, we can. Yeah. For the first time. Okay. How about that? Gen Z, fucking Zoomer co-host. But look, the point is, there is no appropriate place. And maybe it's better that there's no appropriate place to share that thought. If I want people to listen to the Bruce Springsteen song, Girls in Their Summer Clothes, people have their Spotify accounts. That's cool. That's fine. It used to be like that, man. We used to just be able to log on and share takes like that. Uh, I think it's it's, it's a slightly like more charged atmosphere now. Now I'm ready to 
cancel a hipster jam company. So I, I know where to put that thought. <laughs> That's what I'm fired up to do this afternoon. But really, we should talk about um, pop culture because yeah. among other topics, I made you and our listeners a promise a week ago, much like that young senator, charismatic senator from Illinois, who's now getting into the podcast space. We're not feeling the pressure. No, not I made him. a promise that I would do my homework and catch up on you would watch the, a TV show, the premier German language science fiction opus of our time, Dark. Uh huh. And I did it. And we're going to talk season three today, among other topics. Right. So, what the first two episodes of season three today? Boy, was that a no? It's not a dig. Was there, was there a little a, barb? It's in not there? a dig. It's not a dig. I was just saying oh, we're going to do the first two teeth. episodes of season three. I think we can chat a little bit about I May Destroy You, although it was another heavy one, and it was another one that I thought was. I don't know that I have a ton more to say about what the show is doing after this episode than I did last episode, which is essentially lauding yeah. its use and careful deployment of ambiguity and leaving it, I think, I think leaving more to the viewer than it's maybe even getting credit for at this point. So we could talk a little bit about the most recent episode mm-hmm. of I May Destroy You. I wanted to ask you a question that okay. sort of is borders on the personal, but it also is certainly in the professional. Every once in a while, we have, we've asked you to talk a little bit about this, but I noticed this week that the Writers Guild, who is obviously the, the major uh, union representative of screenwriters and, and, and the like in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and they had been in a long-standing, I guess would you say, at an impasse with the talent agencies of Hollywood, right? Yeah. Over this idea of packaging. Now, just for newcomers... Can you explain briefly what packaging is? Sure. Um, or, or do you need your lunch first before you? I mean, it'll be interesting. We'll see if I'm going to take some energy out of my deep, deep analysis of uh, small town German incest, but we'll save that for later in the episode. I, I'm sure I still have enough gas in my tank for that. Um, so packaging, this is the the back of the notepad scratch version of it but packaging is an industry practice that began quite some time ago and when it was initially talked about what it referred to was this idea that what made super agencies and there there's a they're basically now big four uh willie morris endeavor caa uh uta and icm and i'm represented by all four it's incredible by in different quadrants of my work so in different fields yeah yeah that is an amazing (laughs) flex by you um the idea was that if you were with a high-powered agency, they could use the strength of their client base to basically build a package of a project that was ready to go, ready to sell, ready to film. Meaning, if a, I'll use CAA as an example, if a CAA client wrote a script, CAA had the internal wherewithal to pair that script with just the right director from their client list, just the right megastars, and get it set up. And in exchange for that service... They would also they would get a direct payment from the, the studio for their for their trouble. Uh, they would get a cut from basically carved out of the budget that went straight to them. Mm-hmm. Over time, that came to mean uh, that became almost just pro forma for almost any any deal where it wouldn't necessarily need to be packaged within an agency. But if a writer at WME wrote uh, a pilot script that got picked up to series by someplace, WME, in negotiating the sale of the script to the studio on behalf of the writer, would request in exchange a piece of the package, basically. So they would get a certain amount in the line item paid to them. And the supposed benefit to the writer would be that their commission fees would not be taken. Generally, as a UTA client, personally, 10% of my earnings go to my agency. Right. But if it is a UTA packaged show or project, they do not take that commission, nor do they take it from any UTA writers in my writer's room or on the camera crew or in the cast. Okay. That was how it was defined. And then when did the conflict basically, or when did this start to get called into question, this practice? I think quite vociferously over the last few years, as all manner of the industry has shifted and changed and the ground underneath writers has changed a bit and the agencies seemed quite primed to take advantage of the shifting sands and writers felt a little bit exposed as certain guarantees in the writing 
career, of which there are, of course, none because you're still a writer, but certain things like shorter season orders, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, more cutthroat competition, reduced back end, because when you make an original show for Netflix, it will never sell again. It will always live forever on the Netflix servers as opposed to getting sold into syndication or ultimately ending up on a streamer. So that definitely put more of a, a spotlight on the packaging process. The second piece of it was in an attempt to head off um, massive changes in the industry, the major agencies. I don't think ICM was involved in this, but WME, quite cavalierly, CAA as well, UTA to a degree, started to get into production themselves. And that started to be a giant red flag for writers. Basically, the people representing us and our fiduciary interests were also content makers. Um, and that took different forms. WME, like in part of launching their, um, their IPO, has a whole company called mm -hmm. Endeavor, where they're actively just making shows for various people. They're in multiple businesses at once. UTA has a 49% share, so a minority share of a production company as well, et cetera, et cetera. So the WGA had a vote a year ago, and they were like, no more of this. Hard, hard, hard line. No more packaging uh, fees and no more production. You are okay. our agents, and that's what we want you to be. It got acrimonious super quick. It went much longer. It's gone went on much longer. It's still going on much longer than people expected. Uh, I think the last of the mini major agencies signed off a couple months ago, but the big mm -hmm. four had yet to crack until this week. Uh, proud and yes, uh, biased and slightly conflicted of interest to say, my agency UTA Your boys! Became, became the first <laughs> of the big four to sign on with the guild again. And okay. I'm so happy. Because it I'm means so happy. It means you get your agents back, right? Yes, and I am right. one of those rare and lucky creatures who I love my agents as people. I think they're great. I miss working with them. I like I like working with them. But mm -hmm. I'm also very proud to be a member of the union that that you know provides healthcare and structure to my day in life and career, and took a very hard line on something that was not easy to do. So, so it, it, it's a good it's a good outcome. The outcome itself. What was sort of materially established was it is it was there some sort of compromise or was uta just like you guys are right no no more? it's a pretty smart compromise i mean the thing i think that was the sticking point in a lot of the negotiations was the wga held a very hard line saying you have to immediately disentangle enormous part of your business mm -hmm. and what the uta deal suggests is a way forward which says that they will they're going to begin to sunset packaging it's going to take two years to detangle, but because the they have deals change, that are already in place, et cetera, and they've been operating in a certain way. But the big change, and this is something that I also appreciate from my own experience, is there will be complete transparency about packaging, and you know, potential showrunners or existing showrunners who sell a project will be given the option saying you can have a package in exchange for what it does for the commission. Like I am okay with entering this level of business with you, or I am not. And if you are not, then then it'll proceed. Okay, it'll proceed as well. Would you say that, and, and feel free to say, like, I can't really answer, or I, or I don't, don't really know, but would right. you say that the advantage, is there, are there advantages of packaging from a writer's side? So, like, let's say you, you're going out and you're saying, okay, I have this show, and somebody is, like, offering you that, I guess, service, for lack of a better term. What are the advantages of having that happen? Because I guess they could make a lot of things happen because they control a lot of levers, right? It, it, it's a little, I think one of the issues is that it's very opaque. Um, a lot of, there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Well, this is a bad metaphor because cooks in the kitchen generally don't help themselves to slices of pie. No, it's true. So, so maybe I should reconsider my bad well, analogy. Well. <laughs> but maybe my agents. Yeah, exactly. If it's jam, it might be. Um, so it gets complicated where it's unclear exactly who is benefiting from what. If it is mm -hmm. strictly a you are my representative in a fiduciary responsibility responsible role, I get what you're doing. You're negotiating a deal for me and you are getting a return on that. And that's that. There's a there's a cleanliness to that. If, you know, and 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 I I, I don't think there's any issue in being transparent about this. I am a UTA I was and am again a UTA client. So UTA had a had had a interest, mm -hmm. a package on Briarpatch. Um Sam Esmail, our executive producer and friend of our podcast, is a CAA client. CAA had a package on my show as well. I don't work for CAA, but they right. took they had a line item in the budget that they got. Rosario Dawson, wonderful star, wonderful human being, a CAA client. Mm -hmm. Was she packaged and offered to us? No. Would, did the script get put on the top of her pile to read because she's a CAA client? I'll never really know the answer to that. 
And that's, and I think the not knowing is the part that I'm uncomfortable with. You know, I'd love to say that it's because she responded to it and, and it certainly worked out to everyone's best interest, but I don't actually know. And I think that is a uncomfortable position to be in. That said, writers in my writer's room who got the job and were excited to work on it. And then we're told, oh, by the way, by their agents at UTA or CAA, we won't be taking 10% off these paychecks. They're happy. Um, but it, it, it's a pretty complicated knot to untie. And I've been pretty fortunate in my own navigation of it. Okay. So this announcement about UTA and WGA making their agreement came out. There is suggestion that the ball is moving in other places too, correct? I would think so. I would think so. There was an assumption in, in some of these pieces. There was a, there was a suggestion that UTA's adoption of certain standards that the WGA requests are tied to another major agency agreeing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but not those those chips haven't fallen yet. But I will say that for writers and also for the 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 town, gross as that sounds, it it is a. And there are many people probably who won't go back to agents, by the way. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not necessarily what's needed for everyone. Some people might be very satisfied with manage, just a manager or a lawyer. And many, many, many people have been never not satisfied being represented by the fine agents that are at different uh, agencies. But there was a lot of uncertainty in the industry looking at the summer. There was also a major deal to be made with the studios. And many, many people expected a writer's strike on top of not having agents, which was really a bad case scenario for everyone. And obviously, uncertainty rules every industry in every town, regardless because of the state of the world. But that deal with the studios was done remarkably quickly and well. So there will not be a work stoppage, despite the fact that all work is stopped. Was that writers. De- was the deal that was done with the studios more of a stopgap thing? Or is that is that because no, I know that another th- three year extension? Oh, so there will there will be presumably labor peace for three years. And a lot of the work in that deal, from what I understand about it, was laid by the good work done by SAG and the DGA. Look at um, you guys, so just figuring it working out. Working together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but again, to be clear, not working, <laughs> not and certainly not together. So, I, you know, one can never really say how much the uncertainty in the larger world influenced the decision to make these deals happen. I can just sure. feel grateful that they were made. Okay. I mean, I think that's pretty much all I, I was curious about. I mean, I, I think that we, for our purposes, I was really more curious about whether or not this, what like sort of practical impact it had on the way shows get made and what kind of shows we might see going forward and whether or not this packaging thing was more about keeping up with the pace at which streamers were demanding content or whether or not, you know, there there was any like sort of takeaways to be had from all this. I mean, I, I think from my understanding of it, and I'll be clear again, like I'm relatively new to this industry on the side of it, and I was not involved in any of the actual negotiating sessions. But, but the feeling that I got from the line in the sand that the Writers Guild drew was really a sign of the deep, deep uncertainty and anxiety about the direction of the industry, mm-hmm. the centralization of it, the, the lack of control writers had over their careers, because the goal is obviously to get something made. but there used to be some level, as I said a moment ago, of security in it, that if you were working on a 20 episode a year show, it would take a year of your life and it would take this this much time and you could guarantee certain amounts of income within it if you were lucky enough to be working. And the sheer amount of uncertainty in that and then looking around and being like, so, okay, so if residuals are down, opportunities are down, span of employment is down, but these agencies seem to be building production centers. Right. (laughs) They're planning for the next great upheaval. What are we doing about it. So at least that was my that was my read on it and I and and it seems to be moving in at least a slightly more uh, heartening direction even while the the uncertainty of the industry and this is a conversation we've been having for a while is only going to deepen because we don't really know what can get produced and what the appetite for it is and how much money there obviously Amazon and Netflix and Apple are not running out of money anytime soon. Um do you get a chance to check out Peacock at all? I have not. Okay. I looked I at not. it. I thought I'd give you a little bit of a report card from that. A little book report. Um, it's really interesting. One of the things that's come up a couple of times when you and I have talked about this is you saying, by the way, I think you're looking at this wrong. Like, I think I kept bringing up Peacock as if, what's their original programming? How is right. this uh, streaming service going to compete with Netflix, HBO Max, Disney Plus, whatever? And you were like, think about it a little bit differently because it's also TV. Like, it's still going to have channels. It's offering 
a live option, essentially, and also a pretty right. traditional option. And I was pretty surprised how much over the last couple of days that I actually used it as such. Um, oh, yeah. So mostly, in what is now becoming kind of common with, with these launches where you know, a, a service launches and they immediately make something that you want only available through them. <laughs> like the Mandalorian, for example. Like the Mandalorian or even yesterday, I really wanted to watch Liverpool versus Arsenal, uh, which was okay. not, a, not a satisfying use of my time, but I really wanted to see it. Arsenal 121, only available on Peacock, not available on terrestrial cable while it was live. So it was very, and that is one of the biggest matches of the Premier League season every, every season, twice a year. And I, you know, dialed up Peacock. And so in doing so, also spent some time watching its collection of essentially live channels that they have going at the, you know, while you're, while you're there and then perusing their library. And it's not that much different than, um, than I, I think we discussed on Monday. But one thing I did want to point out is that I, I, I feel like we're having a very, uh, very obvious like nostalgia wave in these streaming services where I think a lot of very old stuff is getting really, really front shelf merchandising. Um, You know, not only on Netflix where they're doing supermarket sweep again. I don't know if you saw that they've... And and Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries uh... is new episodes. Supermarket sweep are literally episodes from the 90s. And it's like, I watched the one last night with my... Because by the way, the reboot is just people sweeping supermarkets (laughs) and spraying them with high test... (laughs) organic like just it's not funny but it is like it is really that, weird the like the land of abundance also f- for, everything for real though, chris would you or would you not watch 15 minutes of cctv footage of people just hosing down gelson's like i would watch it <laughs> that would make me feel great before i go in and there's know, a lot of scenes bread. in dark season three that actually look like that um but i was really struck by watching supermarket sweep how many of our groceries quote unquote uh yeah just came in boxes back then right in like, like cardboard boxes you know just like tied you know like yeah. all these like different products that were in boxes uh yes. and also just i was really thrown off by like there's there's one game that they play in supermarket sweep where they ask contestants to guess like which one of these th- three things is over two dollars and it'll be like everything in the nine in the nineties. No, it'll be like kudos granola bars. Remember kudos? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. There's a lot of chocolate drizzled on them. Yes, hamburger helper and Ortega hard shell taco shells. Which one do you think is more than two dollars? Say it again. The kudos. The kudos hamburger helper and uh, Ortega hard shell taco. I don't know why. I, I would say the kudos. No, no free the, ads for Ortega. You're right. I would say the drizzle bars. Yeah. You're right. The drizzle. Why, do you think, why is that? Is the drizzle that much, that expensive? No, those are unnecessary items. Whereas like hamburger helpers, like let us help you make dinner and hard shell tacos just like. Here's some, here's some hard corn. Here, here's some hard, hard corn. <laughs> None of the soft. Remember, I mean, people don't understand on some level. I guess I get you have to choke down moldy jam every so often, but to grow up uh, uh, white in yeah. the suburbs, yeah. as I did. Was to be a child uh, of the hard corn. In the 90s, it was to be like, Taco Bell invented a soft taco. I mean, I'm humiliated to say that now, but like that's the world that I grew up in. I still like so, a, hard, a hard shell taco. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm saying I thought that a fast food restaurant on City Line Avenue in the corner of City Line and Haverford like invented Mexican culture. That's well, not cool. Life is all about learning. Can I, I, can, I, can I say one other thing about supermarket sweeps? Of course. Again, not to just say that like we are totally out of touch with what the way things cost now, because let me tell you something. I buy a gallon of milk very frequently uh, for my my you know my children whose bones are forming. Uh-huh. So the, I'm I'm down with that. But I was reading uh, I was reading this is plugged right into our demo. This is our hard shell taco demo. I was reading uh, Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety <laughs> last night. Great novel about academics sleeping with each other and uh from the late 70s and there's a moment when the character early on as the character is remembering he and his wife's arrival to madison wisconsin like for Mm -hmm. his first teaching job after getting his 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 graduate degree and i'm unclear at this moment i sort of forgot when the book was written and i don't remember what year this would be that they've just graduated from from graduate school and it's pouring rain and they have all their belongings are in the car and he drives up to a hotel and and his wife's like oh i don't know if we should 
use that expense. Like we only have a certain amount of money. And he's like, let's, you're, you're pregnant. Like it's soaking wet. Like let's, let's at least see. So he runs into the hotel and he says, how much, how much for a room clerk? And the clerk says 250. And I was like, well, for a hotel room. Yeah. It's it's pretty reasonable. It's like a Marriott. Yeah. And then they're like, um, with a bathroom, it's 275. And then I realize after he has this conversation with his wife, that not only is he referring to $2.50 for a room, it's far too much for their budget because they have, they have I think, $150 in traveler's checks to last until he gets paid at Christmas. So Dude, Academics back in the 70s. But then it's also like you read the White Album, the Joan Didion right, book. Right. And uh, it's like she and John Gregory Dunn mm-hmm. have not done anything like of not of not not of value but like have not been paid at all in 1968 for anything right like maybe did some dialogue touch up on like a movie or something like once but live in a fucking mansion in like you know the hollywood dell or something and just have like lavish parties all the time that you could really stretch a buck but on the downside chris they had never had a soft taco no and, and wouldn't for three decades so, you know, I'm just saying it's easy to look back. We've we've digressed with I, the reason why I brought up supermarket sweep and the reason why we got off on on this is yeah. I was struck by how much Peacock was like Cheers, Murder She Wrote, Rockford Files, Tears Twelve Seasons, Dig It. Now that might be some personal algorithm that I have already bestowed on the Peacock to give back to me in terms of, but I'm not really watching those shows. I thought it was fascinating, the library play that they were making. Um, Well, I think, I I have to say, I think that's pretty smart. And I think that it speaks to the, I mean, the jury, the the success failure jury is still, that's how juries work, right? Is still out on the name Peacock. But the inclination to steer the name more towards an NBC brand than a Comcast, Universal, USA Network, Shinehart Wig Company, whatever, mm-hmm. is telling and I think quite smart because you and I are always uh, referring to the value of the HBO imprimatur, right? That like that still means yeah. something and it's still yeah. sort of the crown jewel. And if it's on Sunday night on HBO, that still means something even amidst all of the streaming clutter. I, I would say that of all the and people love brand talk. This is this is going to go over well with the Zoomers. That of all the established TV brands, I would say the the one that has the most affection built in for it outside, at least with our generation, and maybe the generation just before or just after, uh, outside of HBO is NBC. Mm-hmm. That partly because of its long history of shows people really loved, mostly sitcoms, mostly you know whether it's uh, Family Ties, Cheers, Seinfeld, The Night Office, etc. Yeah, yeah, Thirty Rock. Unlike all of the broadcast, its broadcast brethren, NBC was very much centered in a place in 30 Rock where you knew that's where Letterman yes. was. Yeah. That's where that's Saturday Night said, Live was, yeah. uh, is. And it feels like a living place and little things that could be cynical brand synergy or it could just be LOLs in the office. But like Brian Williams leaving the news desk to jump up to Weekend Update or whatever gave you the sense that there was a place where people worked and mm-hmm. it, it had a, a sensibility to it. And I think that that hasn't totally diminished. And steering Peacock into that built-in affection is extremely smart because I don't think CBS has that. Uh, CBS certainly has a as a had had one reputation. It's unfortunately has had a much worse one recently sure. for what's been going on behind the scenes there. But CBS, ABC, Fox, they don't have that same thing built in. And Max, HBO Max, whatever that is, since they're sort of steering away from that HBO brand, it is an, it, there's an opportunity there. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to check out Brave New World, which is sort of the lead original that Peacock launched with, partially because I think I was too busy like sort of digging around and looking oh they've got all the all of Battlestar Galactica they got all Friday Night Lights they have all of this they have all of that and because I sort of immediately got lost in in tooling around in what is essentially their live functionality and looking at all the cable channels cable channels what all the channels that yeah. they have kind of brought under the same umbrella I was I yeah, was I, I was ex- incredibly charmed to be watching Sky Sports is what I'm telling you 
And and you were using the free option. You were just watching it the way it is with limited commercials. Uh, your boy might have might have uh, stumped up for a research project there and gotten the premium no ads. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, I like well, to be I like to be a part of the conversation. Look at look at you, Rockefeller. Two seventy five with a bathroom is nothing to you. Well, what, so uh, moving on, unless you wanted to talk more about um, the novels uh, of Wallace Stegner. Thank uh, you. Hotels in the seventies. What? <laughs> it was in the thirties. That 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 was the that was the review. Oh, the nineteen thirties. Yes. Oh, I thought you were like it's the 1970s. The the present day in the book is, but uh, he's remembering when they approached Madison, Wisconsin in 1937. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That makes much more sense. I was like that's a pretty good deal for a hotel no matter what year. Um do you <laughs> yeah, like talk even about- Joan Didion could have afforded it. I want to talk about I may destroy you before we go to a break and then we'll come okay. back and talk about dark. Um do you have any takeaways? This was an episode that um I think might provide like a format that the the show will continue to investigate, which is essentially like introducing a seemingly tertiary character and then diving right. deep on that character. Uh, I have not watched ahead uh, on I May Destroy You. I'm doing it week by week, but it felt like if this is going to be a 12 episode season and it's not going to be a step by step kind of quasi mystery about Arabella kind of, you know, figuring out what happened to her. This is what's going to happen. Uh, they're going to have characters like Theo and the, we're going to think that they're one thing and then they wind up being another. And I think the thing that was great about this episode and great about this show is that you get to the end and you don't know. I think, I think your mileage may vary on where you land on, on who Theo is and what she's going to mean to Arabella and what Arabella has meant to her and mm-hmm. how you never really know somebody unless you are that person. And I thought it was, I, I, I will admit it was it, it was not like an easy episode to watch. I, I don't think that that's really what this show is. There have been a few recently that I found a little bit more difficult to get through than than mm-hmm. earlier episodes, but I still think, you know, all the usual hosannas that we say for the show apply, unlike anything else on TV. Yeah, I think that it was not. It's not. It's it's never the most pleasant or easy watch, which is not a bad thing at all. I think one of the reasons that we might be reacting that way and others might feel the same way. Is the reason for that is also one of the things I think the show should be praised for, which is to say that it is a destabilizing viewing experience because you don't know what each episode is going to be. And I don't mean what it's going to contain or discuss, but I mean, literally, what is the storytelling mechanism for this episode going to be? I did not expect firing up this episode for it to introduce a new character and then devote the entire episode to a flashback centered on that character. That's the kind of stuff that that Atlanta, we you know, we praise Atlanta for that or the most... Uh, elastic programming of our time. And I think that it, the show should be lauded for that. And it continues to just kind of keep viewers on their toes because it can be anything and it can do anything. And I think what it's doing at this moment that is really worthy of celebration is, look, it, let me let me take a step back. It is very much a show of the moment because it is, if anything, above anything else, it is running straight towards the most challenging and complicated issues of our time, whether those are uh, uh, race, gender, class, um, assault, safety, um, the internet as good or bad or just feature of our lives. That makes it very much of the moment. What I think makes it greater than the moment is that the show and Michaela Cold explicitly refuses to conclude almost anything refuses to give anyone and include ourselves as viewers an easy way out it doesn't it's not only does it not attempt to solve unsolvable issues not problems it is its project seems to be committed to showing all the threads and knots and complications and how you can keep you can approach this i mean at the beginning we talked about it being a detective show but the show is almost about the limits of that kind of detection because mm-hmm. you could just keep taking Okay, so that happened. Take a step back. Take a step back. Take a step back. Who is to blame? Who is culpable? Who has done what? And who owes what to whom? It's it's dizzying. And I think that kind of lack of resolution in terms of a casual watch can leave viewers feeling um, floored or dissatisfied or frustrated. But I think that that in itself is the project. And I think it's worth commending. Yeah. I think the project is also about chronicling how people change, um, and what changes them. I mean, I, I thought that the last two episodes, actually, I've, the, the episodes have concluded and I was watching them with my wife and I'm just like, I feel challenged by this show in a way that I feel challenged by like really great literature. 
or I feel challenged by like a really provocative mm. piece of literature where I, I I'm like, this did not end with the piece of um, the grammatical endpoint that I expected it to. And I don't feel like it's been given a period or an exclamation point. I feel like it's been given like this kind of ellipsis or in a question mark. And you're forced to kind of consider it for longer than five minutes after the credits roll, you know? And it, it, it also keeps you very alert, interrogating your own assumptions, meaning we flash back to Theo and we see she's up to something and then we're introduced to this stepfather and immediately alarm bells go off like what's what's up with the stepfather yeah yeah, yeah. is he skeevy is he sketchy is it intentional that he looks kind of like robert carlisle uh in circa train spotting yeah uh, minus the mustache respect to begbie but <laughs> then you know uh cell phones and cell phone pictures and being the generation we are i'm like this is a horrifying nightmare um but then for young terry and young arabella and that group they're like Oh, this is cool. This is neat. This is helping. This is everything is a little bit askew from what you might expect it to be. And no moment is quote unquote safe, I think, for the characters. And because of that, no moment is safe for the for the viewer. I think that even shows that are quote unquote challenging, I don't mean to put in quotes, I just wasn't sure if that was the right word or not. Like even like a, a boundary pushing show like The Wire, there were safe spaces within the show, which are kind of old-fashioned TV. Like when you were in the police department with Bunk. You're like, well, at least something horrific isn't going to happen here, you know, uh, or if, and I think you could probably extrapolate that to other shows too, like even Breaking Bad for all the peril it put its characters in. There were moments maybe if just like when Badger was on screen or something where you were like, this is a, this is a respite. This is a breath. Right. Right. And I May Destroy You doesn't provide that even when we're, you know, with like Kwame and Terry and Arabella, it could turn at any moment. We're going to take a quick break, uh, hear from sponsors, and when we come back, we'll talk about the first two episodes of Dark Season 3. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Blue Moon. Don't you think some once-in-a-blue-moon moments should happen more often than once-in-a-blue-moon? Like, I would like to get together with my friends who I don't see all the time, even if it's over Zoom, you know, maybe get like a nice dinner going, a little happy hour, a relaxing night, just chatting with my my amigos. Blue Moon is on a mission to celebrate and inspire more of those moments, just like those looking for the special in the everyday. Blue Moon takes a twist on the traditional Belgian wit. Let me tell you a little bit about Blue Moon. It was created during the 1995 baseball season at the Sandlot Brewery in Coors Field in Denver, Colorado. Personally, don't remember a lot about the 95 baseball season because I was graduating high school and had a lot of other stuff on my mind about my future. But who was I to say what Blue Moon was doing because their founder and brewmaster was inspired by the flavorful Belgian wits that he enjoyed while studying brewing in Brussels. And so you have this carefully crafted, unfiltered interpretation of those brews. Valencia orange peel for a subtle sweetness, coriander for some balance, oats, which create a smooth, creamy finish. And you get a once-in-a-kind appearance and bright taste in a well-crafted beer with a twist of flavor. Why the name Blue Moon? As someone was tasting the beer, they said, a beer this good only comes around once in a blue moon. How about that? Once in a blue moon should happen more than once in a blue moon now. So next time you're hanging out with friends on Zoom, next time you're you're hanging out, I don't know, watching one of your favorite TV shows, crack open a cold blue moon and enjoy a once in a blue moon mo- moment more, a little more often than once in a blue moon. Blue moon, reach for the moon, celebrate responsibly. Blue Moon Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. All right, we're back. It's Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan and a bunch of German people traveling through time and space. And it's Dark Thursdays. It's we're Dark back. Thursdays, and it's also it's also we're gonna we're concluding a show that we've been talking about for the better part of three years, I think, right? It's we, crazy. Well, I, I didn't talk about it for a better part of a year. But um, yeah, I think that one thing that's gonna be cool about our conversation, I don't want to have too much of a meta talk about the talk, but I do think it's gonna okay. be very interesting. Just so you guys know, Andy has just watched all of two and now is watching three right up against yep. each other. I watched it as as God, you know, decreed in when it was delivered to me at season two a year ago yes, I, or whenever. I, like Adam, declared war on God. Yeah. So that's why I watched it the way I did. But I feel like just based on the text messages that you seem pretty fired up about everything, whereas I, it took me a while to get into the rhythm of this. Well, I, I've, I would say a couple things, and people have heard me say 
uh, dribs and drabs of this as I was catching up. But look, it's no question that it is just life is a little bit better when you have a like a big serving of a show to to, to get into and mm-hmm. you can portion it out the way you like. That's just fun. It's also fun, and people know this about me, and I think you as well. It is especially fun for us when we are able to have uh, synchronicity within our homes and marital harmony and have our spouses on board with us. Yeah. And so my wife's journey with Dark, honestly, is is in many ways more breathtaking than Jonas's because what began with a great deal of disparagement and uh, mockery has now, the student has become the master. The Meister, I don't, my German is, I'm still working it into the Tan House. Shape. Yeah, right. But she is now coming into the room with a look that is usually reserved to what did you or did you not do regarding the dishwasher to just drop mind bombs about German time travel theory. Like we are all in over here. So being able to go from season two to season three with just 24 hours between them has been a boon without, without question. Is your wife on the boards? Is she on, is she on the the message boards? She doesn't know what that sentence means, which I'm grateful for. Okay. Because you, her big breakthrough, you threw an idea at me where I was like, that sounds like somebody who's been spending time on Reddit. No, she, she's suddenly just like finding, you know, finding a, a different voice within herself. Like, the big technological breakthrough, thanks to Dark, was that she said, quote, and I'm quoting, I used Google Translate for the first time because she wanted to make a I'm texting you in German joke to her friend who was also watching Dark. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are on the tech spectrum. So there is no Reddit happening. But she's just dropping mad theories. And that's a lot of fun. So That's a lot of fun. First two episodes, Deja Vu and uh, Survivors, The Survivors. And I, I felt like, I actually felt like Survivors was one of the coolest episodes of the season. Uh, it felt like the show that, it felt like a show that was like more in mid-flight rather than setting everything up, obviously. That's because <laughs> they let your boy Trant cook. And they let my guy Trant cook. I, I do think Dark has a little bit of ensembleitis where there's just so many people and each one of these characters has had their backstory really developed and shown that right. rather than, I mean, beyond the fact that they just have to land the plane in terms of like, here's how time travel works. It's also, how does this stuff affect more than a dozen people that you actually might have feelings about? The, the, it's... I think that, and we we joke about German engineering, but I just admire it. I just think that when presented with what is essentially an impossible premise to pull off successfully, I think that the creators of the show played to their strengths and admitted what the project was and never really went away from it. And Mm -hmm. part of that was, I I would be shocked if any season of the show will be as good as the first. And I think they're okay with that. Like the first season... It's always more fun to be asking the questions where you are a little bit in the dark too. And they were able to introduce us to, you know, two dozen characters who are far more related than we ever would have realized in some deeply uncomfortable ways, but made us care about them and understand them and center the show as a place about family and secrets and and just overlapping lives. Um, second season was a lot of moving pieces. Mm-hmm. And then now we're on to resolution. I mean, that follows kind of a traditional trilogy pattern. What's nice about it is that, um, I, and and I partly, you know, I kind of credit it to the fact that this is a direct a director driven show. It, it doesn't make much sense to say that when you think about how purely complicated it is. But the my dude, Baron Bo Odar and Yantia Fries, I believe I want to say, and they are partners in life and creative partners. He directed every episode of this and i don't think you can overstate how important that is for a show like this which just demands so much of not just tone and vibe and mood but also just consistency to understand we talked about this a little bit the other week of like who is who in any moment it's really the most impressive single uh directorial vision on tv since mr robot i think Hmm. um in that regard but just to say that it is it is a directorial driven show so it it just kind of stays being what it's being like scenes on dark are scenes on dark 
always. Uh-huh. There's always going to be no, someone asking also, a question, someone yeah. staring, people getting too close together, certain framing. And three seasons in, I'm grateful for that as the guardrail as we explore some insanely heady and complicated topics. I, you are never watching any other show when you're watching Dark, and I find watching Dark to be very pleasurable. On the off chance that people are sort of watching along at this pace where they're on episode two or three, I would rather you kind of handle like reactions to any plot stuff in the first two okay. episodes because I don't want to necessarily give anything away because I've finished the season. So I would say that... Um, so the third season, for people who are now watching it, know that it creates what i mean in in lost it was called like the sideways timeline basically a mirror world backwards world which again speaking to the directorial vision here it's simple but i love that they made it a reflection that every set and the work that the production designers do on the show is just mind-blowing to not so so like jonas's house throughout the eras they also made an apocalyptic incredible run on bangs you know where where they just bought every wig of bangs wig like in i've got 10 minutes of material on this if you're ready for it but that that they also flipped the orientation of all the homes for this mirror world it's just a little thing but it really is cool and it matters so we've we've introduced this new world it was kind of odd to me i guess in terms of clarity that they didn't say the quiet part loud at least until the end of the second episode and this is something my wife is all over which is that old jonas or middle-aged Jonas, not Adam Jonas, but right. the one that's sexy in the nineteenth century now, fifty-year-old yeah. Desmond from the Hatch, but German Jonas, um, never went to the sideways world. That that was news to him. So mm-hmm. that our 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 young Jonas, uh, who acted like a fan who hadn't watched the show to the first season when he entered into the sideways world, by the way. It's like you spent two years being like a world without me in it. And then he gets the world without him in it. And he's like, I'm here. <laughs> ich bin here. Marta, du liebest. Um, but that, that he didn't know about this. So this was new territory potentially and something new was developing. And at the end of two, that Jonas stuck in the 19th century has a big tantrum because something new has happened. Yes. Right. Right. Yes. So that So that's where we're at character wise but i mean but this show's fucking wild man because trant nielsen was not on anyone's power rankings that dude was not on anyone's game board heading into season three and then suddenly he shows up in this episode and i have to remember like mads and ulrich and all this and then also i guess we should remember that he was having an affair with claudia tiedemann but then he's regina's father and here's what i have to say about that chris do you remember in the early days of this podcast when we were more ratings driven like the industry as a whole and we would talk about ratings and we would say, have you ever met a Nielsen family? Now, let me tell you, Chris, I found all of them. They are all in the small German town of Winden. And they're all having sex with one another. <laughs> it is like birth certificates underneath the chairs and an Oprah taping. You're a Nielsen. You're a Nielsen. Everybody's a Nielsen. Yes. It is Talk about commitment to the bit, because I had a whole run when I was midway through season two where I was going to be like, Chris, the Germans are all in on Ancest. Uh-huh. Like, that one is okay. Uh-huh. But now it just turns out everybody in the family well, is everybody's their own okay. dad. It's like every every single character is like, I am actually my own father. Like, that's not even like a literal translation, so, but I think that you push past a point where it's like, can you even really track this family tree anymore? No. No, and even, again, my wife, who is watching this now like a hawk, when I was like, oh, there's Trant Nielsen. Because, by the way, she's doing all this without having seen the first season. There's Trant Nielsen. Fun fact, Jonas's great-grandfather. And she said, please pause it. Why? <laughs> so that is still going on without question. I'm going to ask you this, Chris, not just as a fan of Dark and as my good friend, but just as a human being in the world. Um, when you watch... Charlotte and adult milky eye Elizabeth caress each other's face in this circular infinite motion that can only occur when a mother and daughter is with a mother and daughter because they're both mother and daughter. Mm -hmm. Are you all in? Are you like, that's a bridge too far. Like Chinatown was intense. This is just, I, I, I'm, are you, do you ever struggle with that? Because I get the thing about dark that's amazing is they were like, okay, what if we took all this, these ideas and time travel paradoxes to an almost logical, if not, morally illogical conclusion and what happens like they're doing it but does it ever take you out of the enjoyment of the drama because you're like that's just weird there's a central relationship of this show that i think still resonates no matter how complicated it gets and that's jonas and martha i think that there is like a love one boy's love for his aunt right but like i think that as this season goes on you will see that like 
they kind of break down break it down to like where we're all just ones and zeros or stars or whatever like we we kind of get away from like these sort of designations but i understand what you're saying right. like the further it gets away from that the more difficult it kind of becomes to parse and also have an emotional reaction to it does though do things that i didn't expect it would do and part of this is just the good decision making i think made by the creators part of it also might be the intentionally limited nature of the show that it was built to be these three mm -hmm. interlocking seasons but the fact that everybody gets to time travel okay didn't yeah. expect that honestly yeah, i don't know either. if i was ready for like magnus in the 19th century not my favorite character or plot line but it's cool that the moms get to time travel to and try to deal with their shit which is pretty raw stuff but also that you get these moments that you'd almost become so clinical about I, I, it's possible for the show to break down into such a clinical exercise of like who is who to whom that you almost are caught off guard when Katarina goes to Ulrich and you are in the insane asylum and you are reminded of the fact that underneath all of this like heady Reddit stuff yeah. is the storyline of a character who was one of the stars of season one. His his reward for going through time to find his missing son was to live 34 fucking years in an insane asylum yes that's not cool no it's not and then you can that that, that is and that is a big moment when katarina goes back because you're just like i think one thing that the show is having a hard time communicating is the how time lapses and like katarina's been looking right. for for him for a long time uh can i can i ask you one last thing yeah sure if you like do you just buy the, because one of the conceits of dark is that everyone is on dark, as I said. And one of the things people do on dark is if you are sitting alone at a table, say in a mental institution, and someone sits with you, you don't look up. No. Now, I've never met anyone comfortable enough in their table not to look up if someone came and sat with them. But if you don't look up, boy, does it make a more dramatic moment. And so it's, you know, that's cool. But like... You're at Starbucks and like you're enjoying your green tea, whatever, and someone just takes the chair opposite. You're going to be like, "Hey, hey, I just want to know." What I think are we on Monday I would like to was. discuss a lot more stuff about like habits on dark, and also just <laughs> okay. like what are we doing about food? What are we doing about like right? You know, does does Bayern Munich exist in the any of the timelines of dark? Like, are we watching soccer? Like, what is happening? <laughs> I'll leave it at this. It took me three seasons to relate to any moment or character in Dark, which is not an impediment to being a fan of it. Sure. And I didn't expect it to be the character it was. But when young Noah enters into the home wearing the same, like, nose and mouth covering buff that I wear yeah. everywhere now, and it's just like, I'm looking for food, I've never felt more same energy same energy yeah. uh let's wrap it up there grunwald always great to see you we'll be back on monday we'll keep talking about dark we'll have a bunch of other stuff to talk about and a special guest as always thank you so much for listening to the watch podcast on the ringer podcast network great job by us good energy keep that same energy tiana taylor have a good weekend for instance. 